1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are in chapter 5 is where we are. And we're going to be introducing ourselves to a kind of outcome to Paul's exhortations and warnings to, uh, to the church. Chapter 5 begins to deal with some very practical things and it opens up very peculiarly and we want to make sure that we're reminded that what we're dealing with is a narrative. And what that means is what we're about to deal with is really an evidence, an outcome of some of the things that the apostle has talked about from chapter 1. That's what I want to convince us of. By the time we get to chapter 5, we are dealing with emergent behavior on the part of the church that's indicative of people who have uh, turned away from the principles of the gospel. And what I'm hoping to help us see is that these two will also map onto our culture. And that's what scripture is designed to do. God will take samples of human experiences, samples or examples of human experiences, and they serve as models to us um, as to where we are in our, in our present culture. So as we deal with chapter five, we're going to be looking at three main uh, points with several subpoints, And then you see in the question section, when we get to our Q&A tonight, what are the mechanisms for addressing this behavior? Because the Apostle Paul is going to deal with a behavior. We're going to flesh that out. So the question for us, what are the mechanisms for this behavior? Um, and, and I'm asserting that whatever we do in dealing with correctives, because this is what he's going to get into, it has to have a gospel righteousness mechanism that neither... Um, neither uh, rushes to a carnal judgment of excess and indiscrimination. This is what Paul talked about in chapter four, if you guys recall, judge nothing before the time, but, you know, but let all things come to light when the Lord comes. That's a way to deal with problems in any community or any church or any relationship. Timing is everything in relationships, as you know. So my question kind of debate you as we get ready to deal with this, what kind of mechanisms would we use to try to solve the problems that are um, emerging in the church at Corinth? So there, um, from chapter one through chapter four, you and I have already seen that the Apostle Paul warned the church about, and this is where we're dealing with sort of evidences and outcomes. His first serious concern for them had to do with what? Who remembers? Divisions. Divisions in the church. Divisions. I'm going to lay this out for you so you can see it. So divisions are very important because they mean something in terms of worldviews and how people interact on a relational level. The other thing that the Apostle Paul admonished them about in chapter one was worldly wisdom. You guys remember that worldly wisdom. That's also a problematic element when it comes to the church. And then um, the Apostle Paul picks up one more category, and that is out of this division and worldly wisdom, they developed a party spirit. Now, all of this is going to, again, play a role in how we deal with what I am going to consider an evidence or evidences and outcomes of divisions, worldly wisdom, and a party spirit. Those are the three categories that we're dealing with. Uh, and obviously, when we get to the fourth, what I would consider um, evidences and outcomes, 
prerequisites to them is um, their opposition to leadership, opposition to leadership. Uh, they're opposing design, divine leadership. And I'll, I'll use that as a sort of framework as well. And this ought to make sense to you as well, because as you and I know, the Apostle Paul has spent lengthy time talking to them from a paternal standpoint that he did not deal with them as a stranger. He dealt with them as a father to children. That was a stress. If you guys remember in first Corinthians 415. So that being the case, there are some outcomes that I'm going to deal with that he's going to treat in chapters five through eight. They're going to come up as soon as we read them. And then we're going to work our way into them and we're going to make application to where we are today, because I think that they are very prophetic of, uh, of what we are experiencing in our world today. Remember, the church at Corinth is, is embracing a pattern of chaos, a pattern of chaos which models where we are in our world today. Either we are dealing with order that leads to edification or we are dealing with chaos that leads to destruction. Those two categories can help you as you discern where we are in life. If we're in a situation where it's chaotic, you can understand how it will aid in a bet tearing down. If we're in a situation where there is godly order, then you can see how that will serve to edify and build up. Does that make some sense? Right. So our world is really going through that bifurcation as it is now. And I want us to drill down into it. So let me open in a word of prayer and we will we'll go to work in Jesus name. Amen. So I'm going to read in First uh, Corinthians five verses one through verse six. I'll, I'll sum, sum it up over in verse eight and then we'll come back and unpack it. So Paul will give us the theme right away. He'll give us the subject matter right away. And then you and I want to tear into it. So I want you to take notes because once we get into Q&A mode, I want us to be able to demonstrate that there was some labor of grace to unpack and uh, deconstruct it in our own uh, personal way. <clears throat> verse one, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you for I verily as absent in the body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse five, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for you. Finally, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So thus is the reading of, of God's word. What Paul does in verses one through nine is deal with a very ubiquitous and a prominent uh, behavior pattern that is common to uh, almost all human beings, but certainly our culture, our world, our present life. And that would be the concept of fornication. So I want us to be thinking about that because this is a it's a big topic. He's dealing with fornication and he's dealing with it because of the nature of it and the response of the community of faith around it. Fornication. The word in the Greek is porneia. It's from which we get the term what? Porn, pornography, pornography, and ography meaning visuals of behavior that constitutes porneia or fornication. Now, the opening verse is really going to kind of lay out a framework by which the apostle sees this activity, this deed, and we're going to deal with it um, uh, exegetically first, and then we're going to deal with it by way of application. Under point number one, this is what he says, the report of repeated uncleanness. The report of repeated uncleanness. Now, this is why we want um, exposition of the scriptures done for us. That is to say, we want the word of God explained so we can properly understand the intent by which is written. For example, if you look at verse one, part A in the King James Version, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. You guys see that? Right. So that is the literal language. Unless one is really peering deep into the context and the sentence structure, what you don't know is that what Paul is saying is the practice of fornication among you is so common and so repetitive that it echoes like a room where a voice can go out and bounce back off the walls, echoing and hearing it repeatedly. Like, you know, when you're out in this in the valley and you can go, hey, 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 and you can hear it over and over and over again. That's our term there for commonly reported. Meaning it's not a one time event. But more than that, it's not only not a one time event, it's something that everybody is hearing all the time in that community. And this begs the question, what does a Christian community do with a repeated allegation and obviously affirmation of a behavior pattern that we know is contrary to God's word? What does a Christian community do? That's a very good follow up to the proposition. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Right. And so listen to it again, because I want to go into it a bit. Is it is reported. It is echoed. Akuo is our term. It is heard like an echo over and over again. The Corinthians are engaging in fornication. The Corinthians are engaging in fornication. Now, when they use the term fornication, it carries the broad swath of all kinds of illicit, unbiblical sexual practices. And that's why point number one in your outline is, as we stated, 
the, re the report of repeated what? Uncleanness. I'm using a Hebraic phrase because the Hebraic phrase is actually the grounds upon which porneia or fornication in the New Testament drives us to God's system of ethics around this behavior. And it's important for you and I to know the Bible everywhere considers fornication uncleanness. The Bible everywhere considers fornication uncleanness. So now when we use the term uncleanness, we're talking about how a thing is viewed morally and spiritually in God's eyes. Would you agree with that? How a thing is viewed morally and spiritually in God's eyes. So I say it in order to ignite in you a sense of questioning whether or not you see the act of fornication, which again is ubiquitous everywhere. You just stumble on fornication as unclean as something that is unacceptable with God, as something that is problematic to one's lifestyle, as something that should be understood as abhorrent and something that one should be aware of. I mean, if we use the term unclean, we can understand unclean in a medical sense, could we not? Like unclean meaning that one could be contaminated or one could be diseased or one could be smitten with some kind of blight. That is the way that the term is to be understood at the psychological and the spiritual and yea, even at the moral and emotional level. That when you and I see or hear or recognize in the purview of our understanding fornication, it should not be a kind of term with which we are comfortable with and indifferent uh, yea, even tolerant or even ambivalent about in regards to a very clear moral and ethical position. Does that make some sense? Right. So we'll press into that because what Paul is concerned about is not only the fact that this practice is be, being done and engaged in, but it's being done unfettered. It's being done openly and boldly. It's being done in a crass way in that community it's being done without any kind of resistance. That's what he's concerned about. Now, here's my argument. It makes sense that one of the evidences and outcomes of a divisive attitude, a worldly wisdom, a party spirit, and an opposition to divine leadership should result in fornication. Did that make some sense? Right. And you may not see the correlation, but I clearly do. I clearly do. Because when fornication is being understood as unclean, what fornication is, is an evidence of boundaries being broken. Boundaries broken. Does that come home? All right. So it's important. I may be needing to stir you up, but you need to know this <clears throat> because what we know about sex is that sex is uh, inevitable. Sex is essential. Sex is imperative to the life of the species. Would you agree with that? So when we're talking about fornication, we're not talking about sex in a general sense. We're not making them equivalent. We're not making sex bad. Sex is essential. Sex is an imperative. 
right? Sex is inevitable. Why? Because of the imperative of life. So if you take the concept of sex and you conflate it with, let's say, uncleanness, or you make sex and pornea one and the same, you actually confound categories that need to be individuated. Did that make some sense? Right. Also, what you do in making sure that you don't confound these categories is put yourself in a position where your judgment is wrong. So this is what I said earlier. I'm going to say it again. This is what I stated in, uh, in the questionnaire. What are the mechanisms for addressing this behavior? Now, we know what it is, right? Fornication. What are the mechanisms for addressing this behavior? With gospel righteousness that neither rushes to a carnal judgment of excess and indiscrimination. Did that make some sense? Because that's what Paul told us not to do. But also neither does it engage in the indifference of neglect and avoidance of judgment at all costs. That's the opposite reaction. Indifference, neglect and avoiding it at all costs. The latter line is evidence that that's what the Corinthians are doing. They are indifferent. They are neglectful and apparently avoiding it at all cost. You see the two ways a group can go. One can be overbearing quick in their judgment and conflating the beauty of an imperative with the misrepresentation of it because it's operating out of boundaries. And rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, bring clarity to the beauty of the inevitable while condemning the excessive or misrepresentation or misapplication of that blessing in the wrong context. I'm getting ready to make that even more fully clear as we go, because what I see in chapter five is the beginnings of a whole litany of sinful patterns and behaviors in the church at Corinth, which represents and indicates where we are in our community today. Our world is dominated by pornea. Our world is dominated by pornea. And it's important for you to know that. And we're getting ready to look at it in its particularities so that you can see the absolute parallelism between where they were in the first century. Corinthianizing was a euphemistic or aphorism for unbridled sexual perversion. Corinthianizing was an aphorism for unbridled sexual perversion. You see what the, where that goes. Right. And, and so Paul now is going to do what is called not only is he repeating the alarm that he heard, he's going to do what is called an exegetical. So the first line says it is commonly reported, reported commonly that there is fornication among you. That is a passive verb indicating a continuous sense, which means they are practicing it. And such fornication as not so much as named among the Gentiles. So now what he's getting ready to do is to create a categorical difference between what's happening in Corinth and what would happen in the normal Gentile world who doesn't know God. So this is the beginning of an explanation of the uniqueness of this behavior that you and I want to capture. What kind of pornea, what kind of sexual uh, um, excesses that the Corinthian is, is engaging in that is not commonly found 
among the Gentiles. Isn't that unique? Because you and I would say that the Gentiles are totally unbridled. We having been among them, engaging in every vile form of pornea that one can even imagine. We would say that where we are today compared to where they were in the first century, that we have exponentially increased all of the evil devices that would be incorporated in a pornea type of lifestyle. We would probably have a list whose, whose litany is, you know, just it's unending. And the point in our text is that the Apostle Paul is saying the behavior of the Corinthians is not even heard of among the Gentiles in general. Now, this is wild, OK, because what we're getting ready to read about is how Torah tells us not to behave like the Canaanites. And yet what what Paul is saying is the behavior of the first century Romans wasn't as unbridled in the aggregate whole of society as it is in the church. So I want you to capture that. The Apostle Paul is not saying that what is happening at Corinth does not happen among the Gentiles. He's saying it does not happen as prominently and as openly and as obviously as it is happening in Corinth given this particular kind of offensive pornea that we're about to talk about, which tells me that the Roman Empire at that time, having had both the, uh, the Jewish Torah and the Hebrew religion as part of its history, along with the Christian church and the presence of Jesus up to the time of uh, the Corinthians receiving the gospel because they received the gospel somewhere around, somewhere around 52, 53, 54 um, AD. This is the writing that they have. Jesus comes on the scene in the first century. As you know, he's born, he begins his ministry in AD 31, AD 29 to 31. So from AD 29 to 30 to AD 52, 53, that's a good 20 years, is it not? that Jesus has been around preaching. The disciples have now taken on the mission. The churches are being established all over the Roman Empire. And so a brand new ethic of behavior has been seeding the community for a minute. Did that make some sense, you guys? Because I'm, I'm arguing for something. I'm arguing for the necessity of a church to be robust in its identity and commitment to the gospel in order that a community gets reined in and overcomes its chaos and finds itself uh, walking in the order of biblical truth when it comes to what it means to be a man or woman in the context of sexual intimacy. The gospel will bring that order back. The gospel will bring that order back. But it doesn't always happen everywhere or in every situation. So I'm I'm arguing that the Corinthians are an anomaly in their behavior because they're acting as even worse than the Gentiles who've been impacted by the wisdom of Torah and the wisdom of the gospel to learn how to contain their sexual urges until marriage. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? All right, it's important to get. And, and, and by extension, you know what I am saying. I am saying that when we are lackadaisical about the law of God and about the gospel, not being able to penetrate into culture 
and apprehend men and women and transform their minds and their lives. If the gospel is lost, if the gospel is impeded, if the gospel is distorted, if the gospel is stripped of its power, then that culture is going to end up like the Corinthians. That's what I'm arguing. So now notice what Paul says. He says, it's reported commonly that there's fornication among you. Such fornication has not as much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Do you see it? Right. Um, you, you and I may think that this is irrelevant and insignificant if our standard is Hollywood, San Francisco, you know, our parts of Europe. But what Paul is actually beginning to put a pen in is a descent into the pit of Leviticus 18 through 22, which is where our culture is today. And I I want us to talk about it. So a wise man is able to see the evil at its inception way before its full manifestation. A wise woman is able to see the evil at its inception way before its full manifestation, and then be able to warn the culture that there is a crack in the dam and that dam is going to break wide open and flood everybody if we don't fix it. Does that make some sense? All right, so under point number one, let's walk through these first three points. The report of repeated uncleanness. So point A, fornication as a practice in general is looked upon in Scripture as anathema. Fornication as a practice in general is looked upon in the Scripture as uh, as anathema. Look over in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. This is just right over in chapter 6. Look at verse 9 and 10. This is what he says over in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Know ye not? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you see what he said there? So what he's doing now is identifying the kingdom of God with a group of people who are called what? Righteous. He considers them righteous and he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's about to highlight these unclean practices that constitutes that warning. Notice what he says. Notice what he says. He says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be what? Right. So one of the mechanisms that drives a culture into practices that they persist in and repeatedly engage in is deception. A society has to succumb to a level of self and collective deception to engage in abominable practices that are constituted not only unclean in terms of Torah, but in terms of their impact on culture. Whenever you and I are engaging in self-harm or other harm, and we are thinking it's okay, we are deceived. Would you agree with that? I want you to get that. Whenever we're engaging in self-harm or other harm, we are deceived, and particularly if we think it's okay. So, Here's what he says. Do not be deceived, neither what? That's the first one on the list. So stop for a moment. He's talking to the church at Corinth about a reputation that they possess around a behavior pattern that is unusual and prolific in their community. And he says, these are the people who don't enter into the kingdom of God. And first on the list is the problem that they're dealing with. See what I'm getting at? Right. So what Paul is letting the church at Corinth know is 
Your behavior is indicating that you're on a path of demonstrating that you're not part of the kingdom of God. See it? See it? Now think about the attitude of the average Christian in Western culture today around fornication. I'm talking to average Christian. Think about that. See how far their standard is and their concern for the eternal consequences, if not pragmatic consequences. Right. The Apostle Paul says you want to be sure that you end up not in the kingdom of God. Continue practicing these things. So he says fornication nor idolaters. And there are two sides of the same coin there. We talked about that. Nor adulterous. That's a kind of pornea. Nor effeminate, which is another kind of pornea nor abusers of themselves with mankind, which is another kind of pornea. Because what he's expanding on is how men and women are engaging in the narcissism and idolatry of self-satisfaction at the sexual level across a spectrum of expressions. Adultery, that means breaking the boundaries in relationships to husbands and wives. Fornication in general, that means engaging in sexual relationship outside of the covenant benefits, doing it from the disposition of an idolatrous mindset. We'll go back there later. Um, he's they're doing it in the context of effeminacy. You guys know what effeminacy means. That is the term that indicates that one is given over to homosexual tendencies or lesbian tendencies, but in this context, homosexual tendencies, where the man is perceiving himself as passive as a female would in sexual relationships with a man. Do you guys get that? That's the reason Paul is using the term effeminate, because what it's doing now is violating the category of biology at the sex level. I would use the word gender, but I'm, I'm learning to deconstruct that because that's a false flag that's being used today. We are either male or female in the context of sex. Gender is a grammar category. OK, not to have anything to do with your genitals. OK, or your so-called sexual orientation. But we'll argue that down the line because it needs to be argued. It's a brand new concept never used before. Be uh, uh, over uh, beyond 30 or 40 years ago, once the sexual revolution came into play, even in our psychological uh, manuals, it was never a term used. Gender was never used as a particular motive of sexual orientation. Okay, and so um, we have here now nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind, which would broaden the category to not only um, illicit uh, uncovenantal sex between two adults consenting, but now this is sex between adults and children, which is where we are. And abuse of mankind. This is where we are today. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? Abuse of mankind is where we are moving now into the predatorial motif of dominating people because you have the po uh, power and capacity to do so. So Paul is calling all of this out in the first century. It's very contemporary, is it not? All right, let's keep going. A little bit more work to do. Subpoint B in our outline, fornication as is unacceptable for unbelievers. So apparently what Paul just stated was, you don't even find the Gentiles engaging in 
a, a, a son taking his father's wife and, and engaging in sexual, um, you know, promiscuity. The Gentiles don't do that. That's not a normal pattern among Gentiles. Is that making some sense? And what he's about to say is this. It's because such a behavior like that is a direct assault on the health of the proliferation of the species. Because sex is about proliferation of the species. And again, we're reading a first century text and we are dealing with that in our present moment, are we not? A misrepresentation of the sexual privileges in the context of attacking the human species. So this is going to unpack itself here in a moment. Notice what it says, unacceptable for unbelievers. There's a couple of verses I want to give. Unbeliever meaning uh, an unsaved person, an unregenerate person. That's the way that Paul is using the word Gentile. He's not using the word Gentile in the ethnic sense. He's not using the word Gentile in the ethnic sense. Because what he's not saying is the only people that are saved are Jews. He's not even talking about the category of Jew or Gentile. He's talking the category of Christian. So let me help you with that as an exegetical uh, emphasis. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. I want you to hear what Paul says. First Corinthians 10, 32. He says, uh, start back at verse 30. I want to walk into that if I can. For by, for if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for which I give thanks? He's talking about the, the, the blessings of the Lord. Whether therefore you eat, or drink, and whatsoever you do, do all to the what? Well, that's a great ethic. And really what that means is not that whatever you do, you just do it and then say, thank you, God. It's whatever you do, you make sure you do it with the approval of God, with God's affirmation, with his approbation. You and I don't get to just do something and then just give God glory for it. Whatever you do in word or deed, make sure you do it through the filter of God's word, the approval and approbation of God's word so that you can be doing it in a way that glorifies God. Right now, notice what he says in verse 32. Give no offense. This means don't put a stumbling block in, in, in the way, neither to the Jew. Now, here he's talking about the unbelieving Jew. Because you do have believing Jews. Neither to the Jew nor to the what? So he's talking now to the unbelieving Gentile, is he not? Don't cause the unbelieving Jew to stumble, Christian. Don't cause the unbelieving Gentile to stumble, Christian. Watch this. Nor to the what? Which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. They're called believers. So he's given us three categories of people for which we need to be socially intelligent. You guys know what social intelligence is. It's the ability to make sure that your life is lived in such a way when people are watching you that you don't give cause for them to stumble. And Paul says the three categories you want to keep mindful of are the Jews, because as Christians, we're trying to win the Jews and the Gentiles, because as Christians, we used to be Gentiles and the church of the living God, because as Christians, we want the church to stand too. So those are the three categories of people on the planet, Jew, Gentile and Church of God. Notice in the Church of God is not strictly Jewish. The Church of God is not strictly Gentile. The Church of God is Jew and Gentile in Christ. Good. Very good. So this is the way Paul is uh, arguing. So when he uses the term among the Gentiles, he's not talking about Gentile believers. 
And he's not talking about ethnic Gentiles. He's just talking about sinners in general. And this is where Paul would build his ethic in uh, Romans chapter two, verse 14. I want to drill down into this for a moment. Romans chapter two, verse 14. This is where Paul says that the law is good and beneficial as a standard, as a um, a grounds for assessing, evaluating and bringing judgment in order that you and I might know what the good and perfect will of God is. This is extremely important. Um, listen to what he says. For when the Gentiles, that is the people that don't know God in a saving way, which have not the law, that means they're lawless. This is what the Jews would call the goyim, the goyim, the goyim who do not have the law. By nature, they do the things what? Here's one of them. You ready? They get married. Marriage has been part of the human experience from the beginning of time. It doesn't need the Decalogue for men and women to know that the safest relationship between a man and a woman is one that's in covenant. Does that make some sense? Right. So what Paul is going to argue for and I'm going to argue for us to us about is that when Christians lay out God's word and law to humanity, we are not laying out something they don't know. We're simply laying out something they don't like. It's not that they don't know you shall not steal, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall not uh, uh, bear false witness, you shall not fraud. They know all these things because it's written where? This is what makes us different than the animals. You and I are moral agents. Listen to what he says. Contained in the law. These not having a law are a what? Law unto themselves. Verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts. And guess what? Their conscience also bearing record doing two things. Their thoughts, the meanwhile, either what? Assessing, analyzing and coming to a point of indictment or what? Excusing one another, assessing, analyzing and coming to a, a judgment of liberation. This is what we do as human beings. As human beings, we are assessing behavior, right or wrong. We are constantly operating in a moral dilemma paradigm. This is especially true since we ate of the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and what? So those are, this is the perilous pendulum that we are inextricably bound to, good or evil. At the end of the day, all conversations, no matter what the subject matter is, will ultimately be brought to its seriousness around whether it's right or wrong, good or bad. Y'all keeping up with me? Every subject matter, no matter what it is, is always ultimately brought into a serious sphere of consideration around whether it's good or evil, right or wrong. And, and our world presently is trying to escape that perilous pendulum but it's impossible because that perilous pendulum is not an existential system. It's an internal one. But we're getting ready to go somewhere with that. That's why I want us to work this through, because when we live in a society that can engage in this kind of pornea, we are erasing the boundaries of human order and edification at the collective level. Would you agree with that? Right. We're erasing the boundaries of human order, order and edification 
When we can engage in the behavior that Paul is warning the Corinthians about here. And that's why I wanted to uh, touch on that. So under point number one, fornication is unacceptable for the unbeliever. So like very few times are you going to in your lifetime run across a hundred people and all 100 people are engaging in all kinds of sexual liaisons and nobody's married. You're not going to have you're not going to find that kind of that kind of example anywhere in the world. Does that make some sense? Why? Because of the law is written in the heart that relationships that are healthy and prosperous take on exclusivity. And once they take on exclusivity, they individuate themselves from the collective whole and take on a higher standard of higher standard of commitment at the covenantal level. So when a man is thinking about a wife, he knows he's going to go through the arduous task of finding her, affirming a relationship and then going through all of the necessary um, ritualistic protocols to be able to claim her as his. Would you agree with that? That would extend into the family. Meaning sex is only acceptable where it is going to be employed at the health level and the procreative level in a context where families now are coming into covenant unity and agreement around these two heterosexual persons engaging in that privilege. That means we're going to be dealing with a hierarchy of persons interested in these two people who are interested in sex. Am I making some sense? Right. So so what I've been saying for a long time is that marriage is not just about you two. Haven't I said that? Right. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in human history, nowhere in tradition does a man just go take a club, beat a chick over the head, drag her into his cave and say, you mind. Nowhere. Because she comes from a community and he comes from a community, too. And those communities, if they are their brother's keeper, must approve of that union. If you don't have that kind of safeguarded covenant contract connecting the families, we're talking about all kinds of human abuse taking place. Can you see where we are today? Very important. I'm going to continue to press into it. So sub point C in our outline deals with incestual what? Uncleanness. So as soon as you hear the framing of first Corinthians, first uh, Corinthians five, one, a man taking his father's wife. We have a number of categories we can think about in that context, none of which ultimately matters in terms of differentiating. One could say it would be fabulously gross if a young man took his father's wife and his father's wife was actually his physical mother. However, hold on. However, ground yourself now, please. That happens without a doubt. It is not axiomatic. It's only axiomatic in the Gentile mind that when the construction your father's wife is used that is affirming or asserting that the man that's taking her has a different mother. There's nothing in the text that asserts that. Did you hear what I just stated? 
nothing in the text that asserts that. I know where he's going. That's why I wanted to teach the class tonight. I know exactly where he's going. A man has a mother. A daughter has a father. That mother, daughter, father, uh, uh, that mother, that father, daughter, that mother, son relationship does not supersede the relationship of the husband and the wife. This is why I say in marriage, you may be a father, but you're also a husband if you're a husband and your role as a husband is different than it is as a father. And that child, though he knows you as father, he does not know you as husband. She does not know you as husband. Your daughter does not get to treat you like you're her husband. And also with the child, the boy, the boy does not get to have his way with his mother. As if she is his wife. Immediately, my pressiness on you is because, you know, in spirit that happens, you know, in spirit that a, a boy, because this this is where we're going in our culture. Things are turned upside down. They're inverted. A boy can have such a way with his mother that he has more power over his mother than her husband does. And a daughter can have more power over her father than his wife does. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? Because categories are violated. They're violated in that family because that family does not honor the hierarchy of the man, the woman, the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, and then the children. Did y'all get those categories? Those categories are important. Because if the children can confound the distinction between father and husband, then the daughter can have her way with her dad in a way that violates that distinction. And then the same thing can happen with the boy. If the boy doesn't understand that his role with his mama is only a role with mama as his mother, he does not get to exercise other qualitative influences on her as if he is her husband and thus challenge his father at the level of influence around his mom. And yet, you know, this goes on in our society all the time in the 21st century. You see what I'm doing to you? I'm bringing it home to you so that you can stop going, oh, like this is something new. This is not new. This is not new. And if a man and a woman does not secure their relationship as a husband and wife, given the culture we're living in, where children have authority over the parents, it can be easily twisted and perverted where the son or the daughter can penetrate the relationship with mom and dad in a way that is unclean. So let me go there and show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to be going to Leviticus chapter 18 and we're going to read verses five through eight, although I could read the whole thing. And I would say that there shouldn't be one Christian in the world today who has a Bible who hasn't read Leviticus 18 through 22 over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because if you don't, then you can't see the correlation between fornication and child trafficking. You cannot see the correlation between the two if you don't read Leviticus. 
Am I making some sense? Right. And, and, and so when you see the wars going on in the church, and you, these are the, the distractions that you get with petty doctrinal arguments among Christians. Well, I don't read the Old Testament. I just believe in the new. You're dumb. You're dumb, dumb, dumb. You're dumb as could be. Because the New Testament would fall apart without the thousands of Old Testament verses holding it together in its composite accomplishments in the person of Christ through Torah. Does that make some sense? Now, I don't read the Old Testament. Old Testament. If, do you read the New Testament? Yes, I do. Well, 70% of the New Testament are Old Testament quotes. Does it make sense? So now listen to this. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. There can be three levels of interpretation here that I would grant. I would grant that the good God of the universe who created us all is telling us in the general principle sense that if we obey God's law, he blesses us. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. If you follow God's law, it's going to be a blessing. Does that make some sense? Right. Because God's law never condemns anything that's good. That's what I love about Galatians chapter five, verse 22, when Paul says, now the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and long suffering and goodness and meekness and temperance and self-control. And against such, there is no law. Men don't legislate law against love unless it's a reprobate society like mine. Because law works no harm to its neighbor. Patience is not a vice. It's a virtue. See what I'm getting at? Kindness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. Why would you condemn self-control? Self-control are peacemakers. Stopping the potential of war at the conciliatory level. That's the fruit of the spirit. We need that everywhere. All right, now watch this. Verse, uh, verse six. Oh, go back to verse five. You see the last line? I am the Lord, right? That is... Equivalent to the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Kyrios, right? I am Jehovah. And the point meaning God is talking to people who recognize him as Lord. So these are not suggestions. Now listen to what he says. Verse six. None of you, none of you. I love that. He's talking about to the whole community of the faithful. None of you from old people to children shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. You see that? He's talking about sexual relations. He's not talking about taking their clothes off just to see their bodies. Though it starts there. Though it starts right there. This is what makes our present culture, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 1, we are living in perilous times. Because so much pornea is present and pervasive everywhere that people are seeing other people's nakednesses that we should not see. Notice what he says. You shall not come near to any of your kin to uncover their nakedness. I am Jehovah. Look at verse seven. Here it is. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. Watch this. She is your what? You shall not uncover her what? What is he saying? You do not sleep with your mother. Do you see it? Now notice what he uses, the uncovering as the analogy of sexual intimacy. It follows, doesn't it? 
The analogy of sexual intimacy comes under the rubric of nakedness. This is what we talked about with the Exodus account and the children of Israel being made naked before their enemies. It was a picture of Israel's idolatry against God by building the golden calf, which was spiritual fornication. They were supposed to be intimate with Jehovah and the profoundness of spiritual fidelity. And now they are being intimate with a golden calf in the presence of the Gentiles. That means their nakedness is open before all. Am I making some sense? You guys know the the uh, the um, the prototype of this goes back to Genesis nine and then all the way back to Genesis three around nakedness. I taught you this. So what did Ham do? He exposed his father's nakedness, did he not? And what did Abraham? Uh, what did Noah do when he woke up? He prophesied that Ham's son Canaan would be a culture of perverts. There it is, Leviticus eighteen. You follow me? When, when Noah woke up out of his drunkenness, he knew his son had done something weird. And the spirit of God came upon him. He says, Canaan will be a servant of servants forever. And what he was intimating there is that he will be given over to such vicious avarice that he could never, ever rule as a society in the world as a model of good and thriving. So the Canaanites are barbaric in terms of their idolatrous practices, and they are, in adjacent to that idolatrous practices, given over to all kinds of pornea. Is that not true? Right. What city is in Canaan? Sodom and Gomorrah, which we bump up against as the father of the faithful is called to take the land. And Lot, his nephew, succumbs. He ends up allowing the parameters that and prohibition of Leviticus 18 to be violated in his own eyes and in his own conscience. And he's engaging in the periphery of pornea, is he not? Of course he is. You don't stay there that long unless you have an addiction. And this is why his house is ultimately destroyed. And this is why his daughters do exactly this with him. They do exactly this with him. Saints, this is where we are today. Listen to it. Verse verse eight says this. You shall uh, the nakedness of your father's wife shall you not uncover. It is thy father's what? In other words, your father's wife, he's the covering for her. The man covers the woman in the marital context. Y'all got that? So covering is the metaphor here. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Christ does for us. So we are not to be headless in that sense. And ostensibly, because God is creating a nation that's going to be multiple millions of people until Jesus comes, the women were to have a head. That head was their covering. That covering was a man. And no son or daughter was able to penetrate into that covenant relationship that covers the woman. Very, very interesting. Verse nine. You, we can talk about it in the Q&A as well. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or daughter of your mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness shall you not what? Israel, Israel violate, violated that continually. Even among the kings, did they not? Did they not? Even among David's children, did they not? Did not Amnon go after his sister? 
Did not um, Adonijah, no, the other one. Uh, yeah, no, it wasn't Adonijah. It was his first. So Absalom took all of David's wives to the top of the hill and put a big tent up, did he not? And completely violated Torah. So I want you to keep this. Look at what can happen if you don't have the spirit of God. And if grace is not reigning you in and stopping you before the floodgates come. So so we know that Absalom did not just one day wake up to do that. He was incrementally led to that level of exploitation and massive abomination incrementally. He's a prince. He could have all kind of women he wanted. But he didn't have the moral, ethical self-limitation to stop him from going after his dad's wives. And that was because he wanted the kingdom. When a king dominated another kingdom, one of the ways he demonstrated that he had absolute rule over that kingdom was to take the king's wives and enter into them publicly so that he proves that he has dominion over them. Does that make sense? This is why you had all of that escapade going on right before David died between Adonijah and Samson. I mean, uh, uh, Solomon, because whoever can get the wife of the king has the prize. Let me walk through a few more with you, because just in case you are not familiar with the text. Verse 10. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, even their nakedness, shall you not uncover, for theirs is thine own nakedness. Notice what he's saying. That's your family. You don't uncover them. You don't engage in sexual uh, promiscuity with them. Verse 11. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten of your father, she's your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Y'all got that? So you notice how that the principle of uncovering and covering and uncovering is simply a euphemism for having sex. It's important for you to get that. Let's keep going because I want to drill down into some real concern. You shall not uncover your nakedness, uh, the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's near kinswoman. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. She is thy mother's near kinswoman. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach to his wife. She is your aunt. Do you see how he is forbidding every form of incest? Notice what it says. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. Now we're moving into dimensions of what? Plurality. Neither shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, for they are her near kinswomen. It is what? Verse 18. Neither shall you take a wife to a sister to vex her to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. The Israelites did that too. That's exactly what Jacob did with, with Rachel and Leah, did he not? Verse 19, let's keep walking. As you shall not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness. This is something that's debatable in our community today, but at that time there was a reason for not entering into her when she was on her period. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. Now we have moved outside of the incestual domain and now we're having sex with our neighbor's wife. Do you see the devolution of it? The disintegration of the categories? 
This is what God warns us against. Verse 20. So now we have the typical uh, adultery that God talks about in the Decalogue. You shall not commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. Verse 21. You shall not let any of your seed pass through the fire to Moloch. There it is. Do you see it? What are you looking at? Child sacrifice. Is that what you're looking at? You're looking at child sacrifice. It started with fornication. It ends up with child sacrifice. Is that where we are today? All over the world. All over the world. All over the world. And humanity is indifferent. They're indifferent to this because they're indifferent to fornication. I'll be talking about that in a few moments. This was a revelation given to me back 25 years ago. I'll share it with you in a minute. Because I saw it. And I had no real idea how to address it, but I'm going to bring it up with you because this is about parenting and, and, and how our kids should be behaving with each other. I'm going to bring it back up because we're way past it now. OK. And you shall not let any of your seed pass through the fire to Moloch, neither shall you profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with mankind as with womankind. What is that called? Homosexuality. So you see all those categories that are in that list, how they cascade into more debauchery. The sacrifice of children is immediately adjacently connected to homosexuality. You got that? It's right there. No wonder the homosexual community wants to extirpate that from the scripture. Reinterpreting it inside the community of the church. We've had to deal with that for 20 years, have we not? Oh, that's not speaking to homosexuality. That's speaking to male prostitutes in the temple. All kinds of interpretations are given, but you got to be very imaginative to read male prostitutes in the temple in that verse, don't you? You've got to have a creative mind. And thou shalt not lie with mankind as what womankind. It is an abomination. Toweba is the Hebrew verb for that, and it means detestable in God's eyes. You shall not lie with mankind as womankind. Neither shall you lie with any beast. There it is now, the next level. There it is, the next level. You shall not lie with any beast to defile yourself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereunto. It is what? That's going on all over our world today now. It's escalating like I don't know what. So you see now that the categories have been violated at the family level. Then they're violated at the human level. They're violated at the child level. Now they're violated at the um, at the um, at the species level where human beings now are because the boundaries are broken, engaging in sex with animals. You see it? This is prolific today. I could talk to you about it, It especially goes on in third world countries. It's going on in America right now. There's a pathology that leads human beings to that level of exploration. And there's no way to stop it when you have a permissive, a permissive media uh, outlet system like we have now. No way to stop it. They just put some boy in jail for violating the animal. Just he went around raping animals. This is not new, though. You go, oh, OK, OK, but it's not new. It's not new. It's not new. And so as long as we are allowing it to be violated at the pornea level, pornea means it's going to spill everywhere. Everywhere. 
Neither shall you lie with the beast to defile yourself therewith. Neither shall a woman stand before the beast to lie down therewith. It is confusion. And generally, this particular um, desperate, very dark, very uh, devolved behavior is experienced by people in high places. People with a lot of money, wealthy people, the elite engage in this. Yeah, they do. Because the more powerful you become, the less restrained you are and a greater need for gratification requires abnormality. Verse 24. Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for in all of these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. So Israel is a group of people brought in by Jehovah into a land that he was telling them, hey, they're doing all this. That's, this is the land you're coming into. You got to come into the land where they're doing all this and not do it. This is exactly where you and I are today. This is where you and I are today. All right, let's go back. I want to get to my second point. We've got a few more minutes before we go into Q&A. Um, so under point number two, the real offense is, and I have a slash there, and you can fill that in when you want to. The real offense is there. I'm going to give you two verses. Revelation chapter two, verse 16. Revelation two sixteen. Jesus is dealing with um, the church of, uh, go back to verse 15 for me. Um, go back to verse 14. All right. I have a few things against you because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to what? There it is. Do you see that? Idolatry and fornication is always tied together in the scriptures. Um, so you got Ephesus, then you got Smyrna, then you have Pergamos. Right. This should be the church at Pergamos. Go back a couple verses. I want to identify this church before we go before we go out. Yeah, there it is. Unto the angel of the church of Pergamos write these things, said he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Verse 14. We can skip because we yeah, go to verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam that taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols. That's idolatry. And to do what? Right. These two almost go hand in hand as a tandem in scriptures. I taught this church this forever. Forever I taught us this. And this is where we are in our culture today. So wherever idolatry is rampant, pornea is going to be the outcome. Did that make some sense? Pornea is going to be the outcome. This is the church at, um, at Pergamos and Jesus promises to punish that church. Look at verse 15. So has thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Verse 16. Repent or else I will come unto you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's the image of Jesus warning them before he comes. He's not coming to the world. Where is he coming? To the church. You got that? You need to see it. This church has already been taught this forever. Judgment starts at the household of God first. Before the world, it starts in the church. This is why we're jacked up. 
in our churches and in our families and across all kinds of spectrums because we have lowered the standard and opened the floodgate to all this behavior. Am I making some sense? Right. This is why the church doesn't have these kind of teachings anymore either. This stuff used to be solidly taught 30 years ago. No more today. Notice what it says over in verse 20. We're now in the church of Thyatira and he's dealing with Jezebel. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, Thyatira, because you suffer. See that word suffer? That's the same idea that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1, uh, where I have under point number two. The real offense is their toleration. Toleration, that's our term. You tolerate, some of your translations will say tolerate, will it not? And if you were to go look it up on a Bible hub, you'd find the idea of toleration suffering is the idea of letting it go. I want to walk through that a little bit with you. Right. So the idea around a behavior that is detestable before God, but is acceptable with us is the idea that that behavior is actually now on the part of the people. This would be the laity. The people now usurp the authority of Christ and do not apprehend that behavior and bring it into judgment. Rather, they actually forgive it. That's literally the Greek term to forgive. Think about this. We just heard a litany of behaviors condemned by God. We were told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, you will not enter into the kingdom doing these things. And yet the church is forgiving these behaviors, usurping Christ's position, releasing it, letting it go. Are you hearing me? That's the way the verbal construction of that term is. And what that means is at the spiritual and psychological level, we are blinded to the heinousness of the behavior. And at the heart level, we are in agreement with that practice as soon as we suffer it, as soon as we tolerate it. So when we tolerate it, we're saying, Lord Jesus, you don't get to exercise judgment in us and through us and by us. Because if you exercise judgment in us, through us and by us, we actually have to think your thoughts up to you and have to punish that particular behavior. Am I making some sense? So where Christ is not holding regency of lordship in our heart, we will never execute it for his glory. This is true in a family. This is true between a husband and a wife. This is true across the spectrum. You and I cannot actually apprehend sin in the way in which it should be if we're not walking in lockstep with Jesus. Right, there it is. So notice, notwithstanding I have these things, you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. This blows up the Corinthian text because it fills in the whole book of Corinthians with these very kind of behaviors. The Corinthians had a party spirit. The Corinthians were given to worldly wisdom. The Corinthians were given to pride. The Corinthians were given to idolatry. They were allowing women to preach. They were allowing all kinds of chaotic, abominable things to occur. They were engaging in drunkenness at the Lord's table. They had denied the resurrection of the body. You see what's going on here? 
the cascading down into these kind of gross errors is always at the expense of the gospel proper and its power. Once you lose the gospel, you lose the capacity to walk upright with God. This is important for us to know. Very, very important for us to know. Uh, Verse 21, I just want you to see the judgment before we go on. And Jesus said, I gave her space to repent. Is the Lord good of her what? And she would not. That's the culture I live in. It will not. God has given us space to repent and we will not. I'm talking about the culture of Christianity today in America. We will not. Verse 22. Here's what he says. Behold, I will cast her into a what? Now, this is him speaking the first person talking about judging that false prophet Jezebel. He's using the, again, metaphor analogy of a bed. This is an irony. The bed is where she's committing fornication in her idolatrous ways. Now he's going to turn the bed into her judgment. Notice what it says. I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great what? It's a bed of judgment. Except they repent of their deeds. That's remarkable because you and I don't know what that looked like in terms of its practical outcome in the first century, do we? But what you and I can do is go, we know that Jesus meant what he said. We know that he came in some kind of providential way to smash this diabolical usurpation of authority on the part of Jezebel in the church. And when he did it, he uses the Ezekiel uh, motif of and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, you got to understand that the coming of the Lord is not just his coming on the last day. He comes in judgment. He comes in providence. He comes in proclamation. He comes in conviction of the spirit. He comes in judgment. These these are all the ways the Lord comes. You guys know that. All right, let's go on. Got a few more. Verse 20. uh, Okay, I'll leave that one there. Let me see where we are under point number two. Two sub points there. Avoiding collective responsibility to the what? You guys see that? I'm in point number two, sub point A. Avoiding collective responsibility for the what? For the what? For the communion. Sub point B. Admitting heretical leaven. That should be leaven. L-E-V-E-A-L. That should be leaven. That shouldn't be level. It's, yeah, it's, it's admitting heretical leaven into contaminate the what? Right. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Let me see if I can make that good. Let me show you what Paul is getting ready to deal with. It should be leaven. This is quite remarkable. So I want you to read this with me. Just watch it as I read it. And then we're almost ready for a little conversation. I'm going to go from one to seven. Again, it's reported commonly among you that there's fornication among you. Such fornication as is not much so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you are what? Right. That's the problem here, isn't it? Proud. What will God do with that person? Resist them. He has to. Notice what it says, verse two. You are puffed up and have not rather what? Mourned. That he that has done this thing might be what? Three things. You're, and, and we'll analyze this more fully on Tuesday because you can see the problem here. 
Here's a covenant person in the church engaging in a horrible practice publicly and nobody's mourning. Is that where we are in our culture today? This speaks to the condition of the heart and the mind, does it not? And the inference is we should be mourning every time we see a believer stumbling into or overtly practicing something that dishonors God, particularly at the level of uncleanness. We should be mourning. And here's the reason why, if you don't know, judgment is coming. And it might pour out on you and me because of that behavior, too. The notion that just because he's doing it doesn't bother me means that you are asserting the same thing Cain said. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course you are. Of course you are. Of course you are. And when the judgment comes, what guarantees you you're going to escape? Right? Notice what it goes on to say. Are you, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this thing might be tolerated. Might be understood, might have their felt needs met. You see what I'm getting at? You see where we are in our our hyper-psychologized culture in the church today? We need to be sympathetic. So, 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 we get to drill down in that because I want us to get in some Q&A in a moment. Simply at the wrong time is naivete and it has as as its underlying problem, a, a, a lower standard of morality on the part of people that are sympathetic to something that is toxic and dangerous to the society. Would that make some sense? Right. So we do want to be sympathetic, but you can't be sympathetic at the wrong time to the wrong person in the wrong way. Right. Because those tactics are used all the time by, by diabolical sociopaths. Do you know that? Do you know that? They're used all the time. And and one of the ways that the enemy gets more ground on us is incrementalism. That's why we that's why we're in the mess we're in today. This is what I was saying to you guys. What Paul says is the thing has to be what? Taken away. This is why he's getting ready to use the metaphor of the leaven. What do you do with leaven? Cut it out. Is that what he does? Look at the next verse. Verse three. For verily as absent in the body, for for I verily as absent in the body, Paul's not there, but present in the what? That's remarkable. I don't want to get mystical with it because I'm not a mystic. I'm a Christian. I'm not a mystic. I believe in mysteries, but I'm not a mystic. I believe in sound doctrine. I do know what he means. This is where we do have collective consciousness. Consciousness when our framework and epistemology is rooted in the same revelation. That is to say, when the word of God is our standard bearer, we all will think the same things about how a thing is to be judged, assessed, dealt with. Am I making some sense? Right. So notice what he says. So I'm absent from you, but present in spirit. Who is Paul a type of now? Christ. I have judged already. Right. Because the behavior was so explicit, this does not require a vote. We don't need to take a poll. Am I making some sense? 
And if we're taking a poll and requiring a vote, that means the whole community is contaminated at the moral, ethical, and spiritual level. And that's dangerously true of a lot of communities today. Can you imagine faith communities today tolerating a whole spectrum of pornea? It's happening all over the church. So common, you know what's uncommon? Communities that are serious about their walk with God. That's what's uncommon. Verily as absent but present have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. Verse four. Now it gets into what is what we call now the, the principle of excommunication. In the name of the Lord Jesus, that's an authority. What Paul is saying is by the authority of Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to verse five. Deliver such a one to what? For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that gets into point number three in our outline. We'll get there in a moment. Verse six. Your glorying is not what? Right, because their glorying is rooted in their pride. They're puffed up. Right? They're puffed up. They're not walking in love. We learned that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is why I'm saying we haven't left chapter 4. If you go back to chapter 4, remember what he said over in chapter 4? As he began to end, he says over in verse 18, now some are what? Puffed up. As though I would not what? Come. I left off with that in our last study. I said when men and women do not believe in the reigning resident Lord Jesus, they will act like the parable that Jesus warned about in Luke 12. My Lord delays his coming and begins to eat with the drunkards and abuse the servants and 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 act like an unbeliever until the day the Lord comes. What Paul is now doing is occupying the position of Jesus, is he not? He's saying, you guys are puffed up as if I won't come. In other words, they don't believe there will be any consequences to their behavior. Verse 19. But I will come to you shortly. If the Lord will and will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the what? That brother's coming with some serious judgment, is he not? That's the authority of the apostle. Your average church could not tolerate the Apostle Paul. Verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in what? That's Marxism. That's postmodern, irrational, fantasy, deconstructionism. The notion that everything is a social construct. This is why the battle of words that they're engaging in is so chaotic, so irrational, so inverted, so intentionally chaotic because they believe that they can actually bring you into captivity by words. All they need to do is repeat them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you start repeating them. And once you repeat their words over and over, you help spread their words. Am I making some sense? This is the battle we're fighting. This is the battle we're fighting. And is this not an antichrist parody? Because doesn't the word change people? See what I'm getting at? 
So the enemy knows that he can change society by the repetitive leavening of chaos and confusion in inverted speech and words that are unreal in the subversion of those things that are real. A man is a woman. A woman is a man. A child is a girl and a child is a boy when their gender, when their sex says something different chronologically. And so forth and so on across the total spectrum of all of our language. And that little leaven leavens after a while and then even Christians start being tolerant of the terminology. Am I making some sense? We start becoming tolerant of the terminology and we don't realize that in the name of tolerance, we are actually affirming their new language. This is the new speak of 1984. New speak. And the new speak will supplant the old speak and the next thing you know, morals and ethics are out the window. You guys see this. This is what's going on in our society. I told you this here is the rhetorical alchemy that's going on. The constant word dynamic that's gradually changing people. That's the alchemy that's going on. It's taking place today right before your eyes. It's so powerful that they're taking kids now and decreeing that the kids are not authoritatively identified for what they are by their parents at birth. They completely turn that authority upside down. Your, what are they, your assigned gender at birth. That was your assigned gender before birth. It was in the womb. You just came out and we saw the plumbing. This is true. This is true. And yet our society is so dislodged from reality at the empirical level that we're willing to entertain not only the opposite unreal propaganda, but we are willing to go through the barbaric process of reeling the unreal through surgery. And we're not even tolerating and waiting until the children are old enough to make the decision for themselves because remember, all of those sexual violations devolved into the offering of the children to Moloch. This is where we are today. This is why people don't want to hear that Bible. Because that Bible, will, it will spy you out. There's nothing new under the sun. All right, I need somebody to run for me. Then we'll pick this up next week and finish off Point number four. We'll do some Q&A and then we'll get out of here. I'll need somebody. If you guys have some interesting thoughts, we can get at it. Raise your hand so we can go to work and then we'll get out of here up front. Don't and remember this. They ain't going to get this. They ain't going to get it with this. I don't know why you do this. Get it. Get it done so you can see you. All right. So, yeah, we got a female back there. So um, do me a uh, do. Uh, all right. So. Terry, she had her hand up. You got to give it to the ladies that ask first, right there. All right, we'll start with Jackie, and then we'll come up with all our ladies, and we'll get our men. All right, Jackie. Okay, my question is, um, well, it's a statement and a question. I understand from, like, from the idolatry comes from worldly wisdom and the parting spirit. And also the opposition with... um, Divine leadership. Yeah, divine leadership. So this is my question. Um, I know 
we are forgiving. And my question is, how does that, like in the church in Corinthians, and they were doing all the fornication, all the uncleanness, and I tend to think that the church became lacked, the church, the standard, today's church became lacked because they didn't want to be considered they were judging people and that um, they were... um, a, they were being forgiving, but also in that forgiving, there's a line there where we are to judge and we are to warn. I won't say so much judgment, but warn people. What do you mean so much judgment? You won't say so like, much judgment. When people say you're telling them something and you're telling telling them this is wrong, are you leading to them? How do you put that? Do I, and they'll tell me, you know, you're being judgmental. Right. And you don't want to be judgmental. How come you but don't? You, right. How come so, you don't? Help me. Now, I, I, I agree with that, but how come you don't? I'm not, I'm not playing a word game here. I'm saying when they say to you you're being judgmental, what are they meaning, and how come you don't want well, to be that? okay, so that's them also being puffed up and protecting, I think, themselves for to do what they want to do. Okay. And not feel condemned or are repentive of it. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like sometimes that borderline, am I being too judgmental? Okay. You got, can you guys see her struggle? Yeah. Right. Thank you for that. That's honest. Because what she's struggling with is the cost of loving your neighbor biblically. That's what she's struggling with. The cost of loving your neighbor biblically. Right. So um, the first thing that we want to be engaged in in dealing with these kind of things is that you and I first want to be informed. You and I want to be informed. Right. So it doesn't matter what the controversy is. I want to be informed. This is going to be First Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 21. First, uh, 5, verse 19. First Thessalonians 5, 19. Prove all things. We talk about that all the time, right? Prove all things. So I have to know whether a thing is right or wrong, don't I? Right. And then once I prove all things, what am I supposed to do with that? Notice what it says. What does it say? Go back, please. Just stay there. Prove all things and then do what? Hold fast. See what that means? That means if I go through the process of analyzing biblically what the subject matter is and I'm able to draw a biblical conclusion on it, I have to hold fast to that. So when I hold fast to that, that's going to be a position that's going to feel like to someone that is not wanting to be held accountable for their actions as judgment. Does that make sense? They don't want to be held accountable to their, for their actions, and so it's going to feel like judgment. All I'm doing is being informed and holding fast to being informed. Then the second thing that we're, we're doing is uh, in relationship to this that I think is extremely important. When you and I are exercising the proper assessment, analysis, and conclusions, you and I are protecting our domain. 
You are protecting your domain. I, this part is so important to me. I'm going to say this because I've recognized this for a long time. What I notice with people that don't do a really good job of handling difficult subject matters in the church or in the world are people who don't have a whole lot to lose. I learned this even throughout the COVID thing because people were afraid, right? And I would hear fear and then I would hear excuses and I would hear debates. And what I would go is almost every time someone would come up and want to challenge me on what I'm doing and say I shouldn't be doing this, don't get into politics. I'm going, that person doesn't have any kids, no children. All the children are gone. He's all by himself. She's all by herself. And I go, these people are selfish. Because if they had a family to take care of, then they might have a different story. But because it's just they themselves and them, they don't feel like they have to speak up because there's no cost to their domain. But that's also because they are not their brother's keeper. And they're looking no further than their own life. Am I making some sense? Right. So when I talk about protecting the domain, I'm talking about protecting what interest God puts in my life. One for me is my family. Secondly, it's my church. Then secondly, it's my community. And then if I'm honest, it's also the world. Because the Bible tells me men love darkness rather than light. But I have come that there might be light given, Jesus said. So he came into the world to let the world know. And the battle today is that the world doesn't want to know this anymore. The worst battle is that the church doesn't want to know it anymore. So I appreciate her struggle, don't you? Right. Who has the next question? Go ahead on, Cindy. Uh, well, I'll get her. Yeah, go on, Cindy. Uh, when you were up there, you said 15 years ago, I had a revelation. I want to share it with you guys. And I want to know. What that I is. want to get there. I want to get there. Hold me to it. OK. Who, who has the mic over there? Uh, Arbus. Um, you had you um, you made a statement that where there is idolatry, there is uh, um, pornography. How do how does idolatry um, bring about um a lot of pornography. I love that. This is so extremely important. Every sexual act outside of the boundaries of covenant is a narcissistic expression of self-gratification. It is idolatry of self. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter one when he explains exchanging the glory of God for four-footed beasts and creeping things, and therefore God gave them up because they are worshiping the creature. What, what is more intimately worshiped by the creature worshiper than self? And what greater expression does self-worship manifest itself in other than the ubiquitous fornication that's showing up in our world from the beginning of time till now in the area of perverse sex. So I'm going to tie these two together and you'll get this because this is how the devil works. The devil has always wanted to take your body and make it do everything but that which God has designed it for. And it has constantly attacked the family at the covenant level 
asserting that we have the right to sexual conjugation with all of its various possibilities outside of the context of marriage. Did that make some sense? Right. So our world has been enamored since the fall with sex, 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 but sex outside of marriage. We know we need to simply be honest that the notion of um, being a virgin, uh, being celibate, walking in the dignity of a non-sexual, sexually active life is held as highly puritanical and is frowned upon, if not mocked. Am I making some sense? And particularly for young people. So young people are deceived into thinking they've got to have sex no matter what. And then older people are brought into that same lie and it's exacerbated by self-idolatry. I am the highest reason for existence. I am the ground of all attention. My needs must be met. And then when you bring that into the sphere of male and female relationship or relationships, period, where two people come together in relationship and they want to get and they want to go beyond platonic. Immediately, they're struggling with whether they should cross the line into sex. Are they not? Why? Because the sexual act is a symbol of covenant fulfillment that should only be experienced within the sanctity of marriage as a privilege between the two. Outside of that, it becomes grossly dangerous because what you discover for people that engage in pornea is that they generally don't keep it limited to one or two persons that is within that scope of the binary because that kind of uh, violation of the boundary, it messes up the mind. It destroys the capacity for dignity and limitation. And now you want to simply explore what Proverbs calls, Proverbs chapter five, casting your seed upon the waters. That's Proverbs four. And you wanted to just spread out as far as wide as you can, dispersing it abroad. That's the nature of sinful perversion at the sexual level. It never is contained at that that monicum of respect and temperance, particularly when it's not done in a covenant way. This is why we're looking at sex of all kind now. Like heterosexual sex is not even a conversation today. It's everywhere. It's idolatry. That's what that is. So it's self-idolatry. And this is, so you get people who are used to um, really focusing in on themselves and feeling like they need to have their bodily needs met. And then the next thing you know, they're engaging in crossing the line and illicit affairs are taking place. And that begins to explore everything else. That's the society we live in. And I'm looking at a whole bunch of people that are old enough to know what I'm talking about. This should not even be an argument. Right. All right. Who's next? Um, uh, Donna. Okay, so um, I have a, a whole bunch of questions, uh, but I've you been get, noticing... You get, you get two. Okay, I'm just going to do one. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, when you talk about standing or being informed, 
and then you um, prove all things. Mm -hmm. When you're talking to people that are, they have no wisdom. They're just in, like you said, they're in that uh, um, carnal matrix, whatever it is. And when you're speaking to them and you ask them questions, a lot of times I won't answer their questions until they answer mine. And they don't want to answer them because they don't have an answer. They're just, like you said, they're like almost beastly. They're not even, it's just more of an acting out. And I've been noticing that a lot of women have become very, very aggressive. Mm -hmm. Like they've lost who they are or what, you know. Right. And uh, um, and then I've been noticing a lot of men going into that, you know, I'm not being heard, that type of situation. Um, we are to continue to speak and stand regardless of what they do, correct? Right. And we should expect them to um, fight against us because, like you said, they don't want to hear the word. Right. They don't want to know it because right. they're in the dark. Right. And... Uh, um, it's almost like coming out of a dark space and it hits your light, your eyes and you're just like, uh, this is what I'm going to talk about on Sunday because every believer should have a shining face. Every believer should have a shining face. Moses communing with God came out from the presence of Yahweh and his face shone. Every believer should have a shining face. That's what I'm going to explain on Sunday. So your shining face repels people that love darkness. So you're going to expect them to be against you. So no matter what, you should just stand and just say the word and say, no, I'm not going to take that. No, that's not right. No, I'm not going along with your confusion and your chaos. Because what are you going to do? Sit back and let them do it? Because either way, you have to say what you're supposed to say, regardless of what they do. Right? No, right. Now, everything you're saying is right. I'm going to add this as an addition. There's a way to do that that is biblically prescribed that takes it out of a kind of almost crass simplicity that's being implied by the way you're saying it. Because what God would tell you and I to do is make sure the truth that we tell is with the gentleness of a dove, the wisdom of a serpent. So it's, it's a it's a. It's a call to a kind of communication that is nevertheless going to offend them, but it's not going to be because we were unwise or insensitive. Does that make some sense? Yes. Right. So we want to strive to be able to make sure when we communicate with people that we're doing it because a door is opening. We're not doing it out of a kind of arrogation to ourselves to bring people into authority to our position. And when we do it, we're going to be doing it with uh, choice words that will be limited to the subject matter so that we're not dissipating all over into other kind of areas of speech that turns it into a cacophony that can really be a debate where we, we lose in the area of self-control. So what the um, Bible would say all over the place, I shared this with you guys last week, First Peter 4, um, First Peter chapter 4, earlier portions, he talks about if any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. Make sure that we are speaking scriptural terminology in a way in which the scriptures are intended so that people have to simply wrestle with what the scriptures say. And then also let your speech, First Peter chapter 315, uh, uh, 
Yeah, be always seasoned with grace so that we might know how to answer every man in a fashion that is theologically sound, but also grace sensitive, grace sensitive. These are very important things. Um, it's very important that we, we do that. And, and notice what, he said, uh, what this one is. This is our apologetic verse. Be ready to give an answer. To them that ask you of the hope that is within you with meekness. That's control. That's a meekness is control, not fear. Meekness and fear. The fear here is to God is not to man. Right. Because what God does not want you and I doing is misrepresenting him with arrogance. It's a meekness that's willing to tell the truth in the fear of God. Now, I also see where Peter is warning the Christian that when you get into close battles with people that may be in the majority, you need to have the humility of a godly fear present with you to protect you from being smitten because of a lack of humility. Does that make some sense? Right. So there are qualitative controls in the word of God that helps us to think about when and how and what to say what we say. And that's going to add to the witness um, as well. So very, very good there. Very good. Uh, one more. I think there was another female. Any other females? Because we're going to go on to our men. All right. Who, who's next? Anybody else? That's it. All right. You guys got to raise your hand. Um, so, Miss Pam. This is slightly off topic, but considering the prohibition against women preaching, is it appropriate for a woman to engage in street evangelism? So I gave her the answer before she finished. Yes, she did. Thank you. Right, because it's simple. It's context. It's simple. It's context. The uh, street evangelism is not the same as you coming up here and leading a congregation in the authoritative word of God that's binding on the congregation for which if they don't obey, they increase their own guilt and condemnation. It's another thing when we're just human beings sharing the gospel with other human beings. Children can do that. See what I'm getting at? Yeah, definitely street evangelism. But I would also say with women as with men, don't lose your character as a female when you're sharing the word of God. I'm going to get back to Sister Donna's uh, observation about that in a moment. Um, there's nothing honorable in a female acting like a male when she communicates. And there's definitely nothing honorable in a male acting like a female when he communicates. Let's just set that one on the table right quick and just close out that deal. Um, It's really a problem. I mean, we can be gentle, but so I'm not talking about some kind of overt Uh, extremely distorted masculinity, but I am talking about there's a difference between a male energy and a female energy. We need to know that. I'm going to get into that in a moment because of that question, and then I'm going to answer that second one. So uh, who else? else? Uh, James and then Lamont, and then I'll answer these two questions and we're done for the night. Go on, James. The questions that you wrote down at the bottom of the notes what are the mechanisms for addressing this behavior with the gospel? I believe they're given to us right here in the text. I mean, you started out with uh, 1 Corinthians 6 where, and actually they were, it, it covers all the boundaries, excommunication, uh, the boundaries. If they're, 
in the church, then they're going to be 11. And you have to, you have to get, we have to get rid of the 11. And I think that's where the excommunication part comes in. But it all has to be done, let me start here, it has to be done with grace. It has to be done with humility because we're all only saved by grace. Mm -hmm. And we have to approach it, you know, in that way. And it has to be a balance like you brought out in the questions because obviously you brought it out in Isaiah 56 in the text. People have been asleep in the church and haven't been addressing these issues, and that's why it's running rampant in the church and like in the 11, world. Like we've 11. been very, yeah. very passive. Yes. On the other end, in the text, when you address the situation with grace, it needs to be addressed, it needs to be dealt with, and they need to be executed. I think the language was, I don't have it, verba- I don't have it verbatim, but what did they say? Turn them over to f- Satan that's so right. the flesh can be uh, destroyed. destroyed. So it says the soul can be saved. And I believe in the text, if you read on, I think Paul has addressed this same brother later on because he had paid his dues and it was time for him to come back. And he had to write the letter and say, it was time for him to come back now. He's repentant. Sure. He's repentant. Yeah. And so let us walk with the brother, you know, Matter of fact, somebody should be walking with him during the whole time. Even when he's being excommunicated, I don't think he should be totally excommunicated. Somebody has to keep an eye on him, right? That's what I'm saying. Somebody, in other words, so he can have some sort of, he may not be able to, say, commune with the whole body, but I think there needs to be a watchman that's keeping an eye on that person to see if there's any progress, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so let me clarify that from a leadership standpoint, just for clarity's sake. So, yeah, if we are dealing with someone in the congregation for which ultimately excommunication has to occur, that's after a process. So let's say an individual is caught committing fornication. Probably half of this church would be empty if we had to had to judge everybody. on That's a sad reality. Um, I hope not, but it's a sad reality. People would rather go to hell for some sex than to honor God. Because he told you there, he already told you, fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom. So um, that's a sad reality. So what we would be doing is we would be remediating the behavior with the objective of God bringing them into a discipline out there so that it would grant them repentance to return back to the community in a way of understanding that you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Right. So excommunication will be often after quiet, personal, private addressing of that individual or the couple or whomever it may be in private and warning them that they must stop this behavior. If that behavior continues, then what we do is we put them on probation away from the table. Excommunication is you do not partake of the Lord's table. If they should persist in, then we have to Um, ask them to understand we're going to make you a public spectacle because you're persisting in doing something and you want to continue to do it in the church. Now, we've never had to come to that point because most people just leave before you get to, to that point. But long ago when church was serious, that's what you discovered. And what it is, is taking away privileges taking away privileges the same way you would do with children. The same way you would do with children. If children misbehave, you warn them, you sharply discipline them, then you take away privileges. 
So that professing Christian will be coming into the community knowing that he is under the admonition of leadership, knowing that he does not get to participate in the Lord's table, which means in the eyes of the Lord, he is in a probational period as to whether or not he or she is even actually saved. Because we only not permit people to partake of the table if they are really truly professing Christians in good standard with Christ. Okay, so that's, it's a process. And then by the time they're out there, what they are not under is the favor of God. Once you're outside of the community of the church and you are under uh, admonition by leadership, God's favor is not on you. You are going to suffer some difficulties out there. We've already seen that many, many times in this community. Many, many times at the horrible level of even death because God is real. And so people that feel like they can just uh, blaspheme God in their conduct and their behavior. And then when they get, when they have to be removed from the community so that they are not a stumbling to the community, they don't realize there's no grace in their life. They're going to lose their job. They're going to get sick. They're going to have all kinds of psychological and emotional problems. They're going to go from bad to worse. And the goal is for them to recognize that as we're going to talk about Sunday, the favor of God is not on them anymore. You don't get to just act any kind of way you want and call yourself a Christian. That's first John chapter five, verse 18. There is a sin unto death. And I say unto you that you shall not pray for it. So you guys have to know that like what we're dealing with here in this text, this man sitting in the front row with his father's wife after everybody in the church has known about it for weeks and months mean he he hardened his heart. He's just going to bring her on in and sit down. I'm going to hear the gospel. I'm saved. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter. You can't judge me. And ultimately he was judged, wasn't he? So that, that, that whole mechanism is a leadership model of dealing with leaven that we know is going to contaminate the fellowship if it stayed in that place. Now, there are different ways to deal with different things, and we do do that. Mostly, we always recommend um, discretion and, and care in dealing with complications and difficulties in terms of confronting people with sin. Discretion and care. That, that mostly will work unless a person is given over to pathological behaviors for which they're going to end up dying. And that's happening a lot these days. Like a person that's given to high levels of addiction, if they're not willing to do the hard work of the body being destroyed that the soul might be saved, like going into rehab, because that's the metaphor. You go into rehab and you go through your withdrawals and you get cleaned up. That's the metaphor. Clean up so your body can be used for God's glory. Because if you're constantly giving yourself over to that addictive behavior, it means the Lord is not reigning. And then God gives you over because he is more than willing to help you and aid you in recovering from addictive behaviors so that you can actually live in the community for God's glory and his shine remain on you. 
But when you are choosing the idolatry of an addictive pattern that limits your capacity to glorify God because you know you can't be doing all that crazy stuff openly in the community, then you're going to whittle down in your spirit. You're going to diminish in your joy. You're going to be limited in your capacity to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And uh, that negative sequencing behavior can lead to death. And it frequently does. That's why Paul used that term. Now, as you had stated, that brother recovered, but it was because the whole congregation of faithful engaged in the necessary process to help him stop doing something that was egregious to God, to the spirit of God and to the community. So I hope that makes some sense. Lamont. Thank you. Um, what I see, I mean, and then I'm kind of st- yeah. Bring him sh- down because you know he's he can just he can talk all by himself without a microphone. Go ahead on both. All right. Um, I see the definition, the verb tense of the very same word bar, which is translated "put away evil," mm-hmm. uh, brutish. You know, they knew these things and they didn't put away evil. Um, the standard of the Jews was that, you know, when a thing was done, those who witnessed the uh, ill-doing were to first lay their hands upon um, the evildoer, and then the whole congregation were to do that to put away evil from amongst Israel, just like you said uh, in your statement that, you know, when the Lord comes forth over this church, even from the past, the same way here, he looks upon the whole community, and if we suffer and, you know, become compromising to an ill behavior, we, as it were, become leavened in our, char- in our character. Yes, sir. And so I'm seeing, I'm seeing brutish all over this, you know, brutish in their knowledge and the lack of putting away evil, you know, and we know the examples. I'll bring them up to you, uh, you guys. Um, Ananias and Sapphira. Very much The Lord so. put away evil. Yes, he did. You know, and he snapped it, you know, and then he gave, and he gave the woman space of three hours to repent. Very much so. That's, that's the Lord. And, and that, that, the presence of God still works that way today in communities, but we don't often see it because we're not paying attention to the presence of the Lord. I'm going to talk about that on Sunday. I'm going to talk about the presence of the Lord on Sunday, the glory of the Lord and the power of the Lord inherent in the shine, because that's, that's what we're talking about. When the Lord smiles upon us, when he shines upon us, that means he is purifying us. It has a comprehensive process of purification. He definitely does not. The Lord is long-suffering and patient with us, as you know, but he is not indifferent to evil, particularly when it comes from an arrogant, presumptuous uh, Because the Lord deals with us collectively, but he also deals with us individually. And he will see the brutish man or the brutish woman. And as you learned in Revelation 2, he will contend with them. But he will also contend with leadership if leadership doesn't deal with wickedness and evil in the church. And then he will deal with the community and he'll deal with the church as a whole if we have a kind of passivity and silence and neglect of the evils of our community and our world because we're a witness as a collective. And if we're not willing to tell men and women the truth about what's going on in our society, then what's the purpose of a lighthouse? 
All right. Uh, just one more thing. Uh-huh. Just one, uh, and this is what uh, Paul, um, to Arbus's question, what the, the Apostle Paul repeated, that covetousness is idolatry. You explained it. And, and you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, he, 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 he said it in a, in a nutshell, and he said it repeatedly. You know, so four times. It. Four times he said it. Four times covetousness is idolatry and covetousness is the narcissism that is the fundamental diet of all things in our social um, social media today. It's all about self-gratification at grossly selfish levels. And all of us have to be careful about it because of excess, because of um, materialism, because of um, avarice. So there's a lot going on in that area. We would do well to go through a period of a loss of material wealth. We would do, we would do well. So two things. The first one is um, an event that called my attention to where we are in our world today. This is about being able to recognize when boundaries are crossed at the etiquette level, when boundaries are crossed at the etiquette level, then I'm gonna deal with uh, deal with Donna's observation. So many, many years ago, when my kids were younger, and this is why having children is always an opportunity for parents to grow up twice, because often when parents become young adults, they really don't have all of the acute skill sets that are essential for them to be a good parent. They may become a good parent, but by the time we become good parents, our children are just about grown. And this is generally why we are better as grandparents, because we recognize and can look back and reflect on all kinds of mistakes we made, all kinds of mistakes we made. Mistakes that open the door for our children to engage in things that could take a very long time, if ever, of overcoming. Right. Now, we're not called to be perfect, so no one needs to be condemned or overly weighted down by, you know, it's the parents' faults. It's only your fault up to a point. Then it's on them. But I say that to say this. I remember back in the... uh, Late 80s, 88, 89, yep, maybe about 1990, and I was watching our young people in our church um, starting to develop relationships for each other at 13, 14 years old. And of course, every family is on display to everybody else's family in terms of how well the parents are raising their kids. And... uh, This is often where the church gets a bad rap because parents that are really serious about raising their kids right often get the brunt of all kinds of unjust accusations. Like the parents are fastidious. They are self-righteous. They're legalistic. They're way too sheltering of their kids. You get all that stuff. I heard that a lot. You're way too sheltering of your kids. Only problem is, The kids aren't sliding over into all kind of hell like other kids are. If sheltering means protecting the kids from catastrophic experiences, then shelter them. Because if you look at society today, 
we recognize that there wasn't enough sheltering going on over the last two generations. So I I marveled at how the church opens itself up to accusations uh, on the part of the world and then buys it and starts eating their own with the same thing. You should commend any couple that really labors hard to raise their children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. We would all want to find balance in raising our kids in a way in which our kids don't lose their identity, uh, don't lose their confidence, et cetera, et cetera. There are ways to talk about that. But as I've stated before, I'd rather um, err on the side of being hyper conservative and then loosening the reins as they get older than being liberal when they're young and never ever being able to get a hold of the kids by the time they're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old because they feel like they're grown by the time they're 11. And they've already readjusted the relationship dynamics between them and their parents and they really are ruling their parents. I know what I'm talking about. Um, And so I started seeing young Christians who were dating each other Engaging in kind of open flirting behavior. You young people know what I'm talking about that go to Christian schools. Uh, You know, I I don't have a problem when you kind of are dating and you might hold hands here or there. But the kind of hugging and engaging in what uh, the Genesis narrative calls sporting, which is what Abraham did with his wife. There is way too much sporting going on with young people in terms of overt expressions of intimacy. It's not wise. Everyone can know how to retain themselves in public in a way that you honor decency. Why should other single boys or girls or young men or young women have to watch you petting each other? Am I making some sense? Right, and and so... I watched this happening in the most conservative churches. So needless to say, it never happened with my kids around me. Um, I don't know if they ever snuck out and went to another planet and did it. But I was serious about it. I was serious about it, particularly because we know how slippery that slope is with girls, particularly. And I had four girls before I had a boy. And so I saw those models and I said to my girls, you don't you don't need to get that comfortable. You don't need to get that comfortable. You can have a great time, you know, using uh, decency and spacing. If that person respects you, they will honor that. And if you feel like you need to cross over into behavior that is um, questionable relative to decency and, and uh, self-respect, then, then you need to seek some counsel because you have needs that are deeper than you are actually recognizing, right? Once you export your importance to that man or that woman to affirm you in your dignity, then you become a slave of that person. And no young person should ever have to feel compelled to be a slave of their friend or girlfriend or boyfriend. They should have a mutual respect with that level of spacing, particularly on a public level. Because look at what's going on today. This was back in 1989. We're we're 24 years in. And they're going way beyond just kind of light petting today. 
And we're looking at a society today that is so rotten in terms of no shame, no boundaries, no parameters, no no niceties around uh, 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 men exercising uh, chivalry and all of those kinds of respectful things to to make sure that they don't inadvertently go places that they shouldn't. You don't even hardly see that today. It is a rottenness in our communities. And this is where fornication is off the chart. And this is where sexually transmitted diseases are off the chart. This, and that's uncleanness. That is your uncleanness. Uncleanness at the medical level is such a big problem. It's a big elephant and the medical industry knows it. It knows it. It's bad enough that it should be publicly talked about, but they won't do it because the medical industry gets paid for people to be sick. You know this is the case. Um, The other thing, and so, you know, I'm really feeling bad for young people who don't know how to hold boundaries and and don't have help in, in the supervision of that, particularly if you end up dating someone that mutually also doesn't know boundaries. One more thing. We are dealing with a very, very, very um, diabolical, I think is intentional. It's going to be proven that way at length because uh, in our world of pesticides and in our world of toxins and in our world of chemicals, it has already been proven that the modification of uh, male and female uh, genetic uh, maladies is leading to not only physical reversion of their biological sex, but also their psychological compatibility to their biological sex. This is not a secret, it's just that it's not broadly publicized. We have been experimenting with animals as to uh, animals being male at birth and then given certain uh, chemicals to reverse their uh, male species orientation to female. This is big in public. OK, I like this. So I'm not this is not a conspiracy. These are factual things. And then and then um, I wouldn't call them gay frogs. I mean, you can. I think that's a pejorative, but that's okay. What I'm getting at is that when the medical industry knows that it can modify the biological makeup of the male and the female, it inevitably, like, it is going to tamper with human beings. And they have. And these toxins have already proved to mess up the reproductive nature of males and females. And the reproductive nature of males and females is inextricably connected to your neurological makeup and therefore your psychological makeup. You, you cannot disconnect the two. You cannot disconnect the two. And so where there is a lowering of testosterone in the male or the female, it's going to take, it's going to challenge their psychological and characterological disposition. That is obviously a fact. So if you and I are looking up and we're seeing what they want to call, you know, like just a growing numbers of homosexuals, men and women. And now today, a growing number of, you know, transgender kids. This is not merely a phenomenon at the sociological level. 
This is at the biological level because of toxins and because of exploration going on in the medical industry because of its interest in how to manipulate the biological makeup of human beings. This is just a fact. So a lot of what you're looking at, you won't be able to ascribe to sociological factors. You're going to have to get further behind that and and discover that in the same way in which they experimented with our military men, with a lot of this stuff for many, many years, they were experimenting with people in prison. They were experimenting with kids in school. Do you hear what I'm stating? These are factual things. The media will never let this get out, but these are contributory factors to the escalation of homosexuality Uh, uh, lesbianism and the uh, different uh, sexual orientations of human beings today. It only makes sense that they're seeing that proliferation because they did it in animals. And there is a correlation between human beings and animals. We know that, you know, to the tune of 97 percent of uh, commonality between human beings and frogs and human beings and monkeys and human beings and many other species. And so I'm sharing that with you because As you see the social engineering going on continually today, as it is, that social engineering is combined with an atmosphere filled with toxins and filled with chemicals, aiding and abetting the chaos and confusion of the gender or the male-female personality traits. So we have that spectrum going on. And then when you when you have that actual spectrum and then you have the authority saying, we will tell you that you're 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 not gay, you're trans. And that's a real complex subject going on today, because what that's doing is creating different categories that never existed before. And those categories are context for arguments and debates and fights right now, as you know. The LGBTQIA community is already in their own right fighting over identity markers around these things. It's quite marvelous to see it, but I would would encourage you not to laugh. Understand it as being a trap into which human beings were put, not just on a uh, phenomenology level, but at the level of science and technology and toxins and pesticides and chemicals and then also sociological behavior. And it's not going to stop anytime soon. It's not going to stop anytime soon. Yeah, Warren, you can. It could be. It could be. It, it, it could be. All I can say is this. When our medical industry is engaging in these kinds of explorations and they know that they can create... Um, Uh, They can cause men and women to be sterile, which is really true. Sperm counts have gone down exponentially in America over the last 20 years. Uh, When they can do that, then they can they can count on those numbers going down. You have to build that argument, you you know, that that correlation. Um, But we, we do know that they've been there's been a hue and cry for a long time. Population is a problem. You guys know that. I don't even care anything about it. It's the greatest fallacy of logic, you know, that one can imagine. There's plenty room on the planet. The problem is not population control, it's management of people groups with an ethical, moral 
framework by a government that knows how to actually honor human beings for what they really are. Our problem is our government. Our problem is not population. The planet can hold 50 billion people if it wanted to. This is factually true, true in terms of geography around the world. It can easily do that. Technology is available actually for that to happen and people can thrive. But what we're doing is when you bunch people together intentionally, you create crowds and then you make it look like it's overpopulation. I mean, there are plenty of ways to expose the fallacy of that argument. But what we're dealing with today, in addition to what I'm sharing with you about the problem with biology starting to uh, reverse because of toxins and pesticides and actual drugs. What we're dealing with today, which is a greater phenomena for which I am very much concerned. And this is the phenomena of the mind being unhinged from coherent reality. This is the phenomena of humanity in Western culture easily becoming unhinged when it comes to reality. Men, women, and children are suffering major mass traumatic psychological disorders. We know this. We know this. And it's, and it's, it's an epidemic in its own right. People are not healthy psychologically. They are not healthy emotionally. They're not sound rationally. They don't have the capacity to really arduously work through complex thought systems. And that opens them up for all kinds of irrational and absurd propositions that come down from us once again by the authorities telling us it's this rather than that. Biblically, God is giving humanity over to what it wants, and that's madness. That is a, a form of madness. And that's the Bible, it prophesies that. Madness. And, and it's a sad reality when humanity says no to God, and then God gives them up to madness. And that's, that's, that's where we're going. Uh, it's to be prayed about and, and, and for you and me to really be thinking about how we can make sure that we uh, stay as healthy as we possibly can and be grounded in reality as well and grounded in the, the principles of God as pertaining to love and righteousness. Right. So in the same way that we admit that we can be suffering from all kinds of toxins and chemicals and pesticides and, and the uh, indiscretions of our governing authorities experimenting with us, we admit that. We also admit that we can heal. We can regenerate. We can recover and we can. God put it in our bodies to do so. All right, now you guys are bobbing your head because that, that's a positive word. But you have to assist that, too. You have to see because I could go to Exodus. Uh, I could go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 says, if you rebel against me, I will give you over to madness. But if you obey me, I will keep all of the plagues of Egypt from off of you. So even though we're dealing with an archaic expression in that Old Testament passage, its general application today is that when men and women abandon a biblical worldview that calls for the hierarchy of a good, benevolent, divine being, 
and for us to mimic him in the area of walking upright and embracing his laws for our good as we learn today and avoid the pathways of uncleanness, you're going to find those communities that are doing that surviving through all of the chaos that's going on in our culture, barring, you know, radically genetic disadvantages that may occur. Because all of us could be suffering from something that is profoundly uh, genetically uh, damaging that no matter what you do, you're going to have a short life. You're going to end up having some kind of sickness and die, right? That's all plausible. What I am saying is if we do the diligence of making sure we cut short all assumptions on our part and, 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 and behave in manners that aid and abet healing and, and health and strength, maybe God will grant us the blessing of our Amish brethren because they don't want to do double-blind randomized tests with societies that have opted out of this medical experimentation over the last 50 or 60 years because you can prove it. Obviously, you can prove it by legitimate testing. And that's really your biblical model. So when Paul says cut the leaven out, what he's saying is separate that which has those contaminating factors over by itself so that it doesn't mess up the rest of the body politic. You can see that, right? Well, what he's calling you and me to do is separate ourselves from the system by way of responsibility for self-healing by the grace of God at all levels in which we possibly can. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right. And we can do it by his grace if we want to. And if we don't want to do it for ourselves, we should do it for our children. All right, I'm going to have to have somebody help me with my board. Let's stand in prayer. And we'll pick up on Friday. So, Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for granting us to be the kind of people that wants to press into your scriptures and understand what's going on now as it was going on then. And we know, oh God, that you have called us to a life of moral rectitude, of ethical propriety, of spiritual dynamic, of social responsibility, of boundaries and parameters that constitutes thriving and help for our society, and then a, a profound evangelical commitment to let men and women know that the root problem that we're dealing with can only be resolved by a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Help us to be bold enough to tell the truth in these areas and to live out this gospel in a way in which you can get glory from people who understand the appropriateness of separation unto God through sanctification. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. Prepare us to worship you on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.